Well, it's great to see a few more uh, this morning. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, we've got a lovely place, lovely, lovely weather. Uh, and so thank you for, for joining us. We've been uh, beginning to look at the book of Philippians last night, uh, if you were here. Uh, we really were looking at the idea last night of how the gospel is our center, is our center. And once it becomes the center of our life, it revolutionizes everything else, our relationships, our values, our hopes. Well, this morning we're going to consider how from 1 verse 27 right through to the end of chapter 2, how the gospel is our pattern, how the gospel is our pattern. So again, we're going to do a whistle-stop tour uh, of this chapter. It's, a, it's quite a, a lengthy section, and so please be patient, uh, but it does repay our careful study. So let's pray just for, for energy, for mental strength, just to get through, uh, for me uh, and for you, uh, to get through uh, this chapter uh, and hear what God has to say to us. So let's bow our heads uh, and ask for his help. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you uh, for your word. Uh, and we thank you that it is a treasure. Father, we thank you that your word is the food that we need. Father, we pray, please, then, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher, uh, that your glory would be our chief concern. And we pray, please, as with Paul uh, for the Philippians, we pray, please, that we might get to know you better so that we might love you more so that we might be able to discern what is pleasing to you and make wise decisions in our daily lives. And so we pray, please, you be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, I want to begin with a story about a Christian builder, a Christian builder who, don't worry about the circumstances, let's not worry about the details, but how he got marooned on an uninhabited island, right? He got marooned on an uninhabited island. Now, initially, he's quite confident that he's going to get, uh, he's going to get rescued, he's going to get picked up. Uh, but those hopes begin to fade over time as days turn into weeks, as weeks turn into months, as months turn into years. And he finally reconciles with the idea that he's going to be here by himself forever, potentially. And so what he sets himself to do, because he is a builder, he might as well occupy his time building stuff, building a little society for himself. Uh, And so he sets himself that task, builds a house and so on. Um, Fifteen years pass, fifteen years, and finally a boat appears on the horizon. Uh, And a a little boat is rowed from the bigger boat ashore, and there's about 20 people on this little boat and they come to this on un- what they think is an uninhabited island, and they're shocked to find the, the Christian builder absolutely amazed. Uh, well, he's absolutely delighted uh, that they've finally come, uh, and he's also delighted to show them around the, the island uh, and the little civilization that he's built. And so they, he shows them his house, which is lovely. Uh, they go down the street, and he shows them the school for future inhabitants that might come to this island. Uh, He then shows them, because he's a Christian builder, he then shows them the church that he's built. And it's got a large, impressive building. Uh, And they walk on down the road a little bit further. And then they see a second church that's just as big, just as impressive, 
but clearly neglected now, clearly derelict. You're here in your own. What do you need two churches for, they ask? And he said, well, that's the church I used to go to. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I didn't really like the way they did things there, and so, so I left. And I think we find that story mildly amusing, mildly amusing, because actually it cuts quite close to the truth, doesn't it? It cuts quite close to the truth. It's not with, without merit that Christians are regarded as um, fighters and splitters. Uh, we almost have a reputation of falling out with our own shadow. Uh, but this is a, a passage then that has to do with this topic of unity, unity among the people of God, that that um, fighting against one another, splitting from one another, uh, is to be something avoided at all cost, something avoided uh, at all cost. Um, If you were here yesterday, um, last night rather, we have seen that Paul is writing to this little church uh, in Philippi that he was involved in setting up. Uh, Epaphroditus, who we'll hear about in a moment, uh, has come, bringing a gift, bringing some support for Paul, and through Epaphroditus he's heard uh, of what's going on in the church. And one of the issues clearly that's going on in the church here, uh, and we know explicitly from chapter 4, verses 1 uh, to 3, that there's fighting going on in the church. And so Paul then addresses this issue then uh, of conflict within the church and you see, sadly, uh, it's one of the, re- the main reason I would want to suggest, or at least one of the main reasons for churches going into decline and disbanding and disappearing is not primarily as a result of external pressure, persecution coming from the outside. One of the main reasons for Christians and churches disbanding and declining and disappearing is actually internal sin and squabbling between the people of God. And so Paul then in this section addresses uh, this topic. And he has two lessons for them, two lessons for you and me as we listen. So first, his first lesson is make unity, make the unity of the church your aim. Make the unity of the church your aim. How do you do that? Secondly, by making the humility of Christ your model, okay? If you forget everything else I say in the next few minutes, those are the two things you need to hold on to. Make the unity of the church your aim and make the humility of Christ uh, your model. Paul has been talking about himself up until now. He's been talking about his situation. He's been talking about what he's been going through and what he's been thinking and what he's been feeling. But for the first time now, in verse 27... Uh, Paul uh, gives them an instruction, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, some of you, this is a more recent memory than perhaps folks like myself who are a little older. Uh, But I wonder, do you remember school trips? Anyone remember your school trips? You know, you all scramble to get the seat beside your friend on the coach, you know, and everyone kind of has chaos as everyone gets onto the bus uh, as you're getting ready to go to the museum or go to France or wherever it is you're going. Um, But at some point at the beginning of the the day of the trip, 
one teacher at some point would have always hushed, tried to get a hush, get everyone's attention, and said something like, be on your best behavior because you're representing the school. And you're wearing the school uniform, and, and we, don't want, we don't want your bad behavior to reflect badly on the school. Yeah, you get the idea? Because of who you are and who you represent, that means you should behave in a better way. Okay? And that works in a whole bunch of other different areas. One area, for example, is in the area of the military. Do you know that as a soldier, you, that you could be uh, discharged from the military for conduct unbecoming of a soldier? Conduct unbecoming of a soldier. Same logic. Because you're a soldier, because you wear that uniform representing this country, how you behave reflects on us and it matters. You get the idea? That is pretty much the logic going on here. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Now, the, perf- the precise phrase here is really interesting. Uh, conduct yourselves, conduct yourselves or behave in a manner. Um, the literal translation of that is behave as citizens. Behave as citizens worthy of the gospel. Now, what does Paul mean by that? Um, it's the, same, it's the same word that he uses, as we'll see when we get to chapter 3, verse 20, when he talks about them being having their citizenship in heaven. Um, <clears throat> back in, uh, I think it's, uh, yes, 42 BC. In 42 BC, uh, Emperor Octavian made Philippi a Roman colony. So Philippi is a city in northwestern Greece, and yet it's a Roman colony. Those, anyone born in Philippi were Roman citizens. That means they, wear, they wore Roman clothes, they followed Roman customs, they obeyed Roman laws, they paid Roman taxes. They were a little bit of Rome right in the middle of Greece. They lived in a manner worthy of Rome in the midst of Greece. And so this is an idea that they're very familiar with behaving as a citizen, behaving differently from those around you because of who you are and who you represent. And so Paul picks up that exact same idea and applies it now to them as Christians. Because you are citizens of heaven, behave as citizens of heaven right in the midst of earth. That's the logic. Do you see? It makes sense. So they are to behave in a certain way as citizens or live a life worthy of the gospel because of who they are uh, and who they represent. Paul then, in this section, goes on then to talk about the importance of unity, the importance uh, of unity. They are to live a life worthy of the gospel. And that's the big principle. Live a life worthy of the gospel. Behave in a certain way, in a right way, because of who you are and who you represent. And that could have hundreds of different applications. It could apply to um, obeying God as your father, if you truly understand the gospel and you're citizens of heaven. It could mean celebrate the forgiveness that you have in Jesus. 
because you're, you've been made citizens of heaven. It could mean do good works. You know, it could apply in terms of do good works in, 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 this, in the community in which you, you serve. But the one application of this big principle, live in a manner worthy of the gospel, the one application that Paul drives home now again and again is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means living united together as God's people. Living united together as God's people. That's his big application uh, of this point. Can you see it there in verse 27? Live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whenever I come and see you or hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending or striving as one man for the faith of the gospel. He uses two images to get across the idea of what unity looks like. What does it look like? First one is a military image. Stand firm together, a military image. This would have been a common idea. Roman soldiers standing shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, forming the shield wall against the enemy. You're to be like that. Stand shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield against a common foe. That's what you're to do. He then picks up this idea of striving or contending, which is actually an athletic image, an athletic image of a team working together. Now, it may not look like it, uh, but I still play uh, five-a-side football every week uh, and enjoy it. But a a couple of years ago, uh, even though I'm not any good, um, a couple of years ago, we had a group, uh, a team, little team, that we entered in a charity five-a-side tournament. Uh, and it turns out, in God's strange providence, we were up against a team of teenagers. Like, on average, they were about half our age. <laughs> like it was so, um, and at one point, and, and, and on top of that, not only were they younger, but on top of that, they were actually better footballers than we. They, literally, it was, let's keep the score down here. Let's just keep it respectable. And for a while, they were literally running rings around us. But we had a pretty good team spirit because we played together a lot. And so we tried to be in, we were encouraging to one another. And so if some guy missed a tackle, uh, one would, would run into cover for him. Uh, we were shouting encouragement to one another. You know, good pass, good tackle, great shot. And then actually we scored a couple of goals. <laughs> a couple of goals. And that's when it started. They started squabbling with each other, pointing the finger, blaming each other, um, swearing at one another. And as a team, they fell apart. They fell apart. They were good footballers, but we were a better team. What Paul is talking about here is that you are to be, as Christians, striving together as a good team. Striving together. Uh, as a good team. And again, as, as I said, uh, this is um, a, an issue in Philippi, we know from chapter 4, and hence all throughout the letter, that some of that finger-pointing, some of that blaming has crept, has crept into the church. Uh, part of it could be as a result of pressure from the outside, um, Pressure from the outside uh, on any group can have one of two effects. It can either 
bring you closer together as you work together against a common foe, right? It can unite you, it can bring you together, or it can split you, can divide you as you give in to, as the tensions rise, as you give in to fear, and then self-preservation kicks in, and you, do, you end up working for yourself rather than for, for the common good. And there are hints then in this letter uh, that some of those, there are, there are pressure from the outside coming on this little church. Notice in verse 28, it talks about those who oppose you. And then perhaps uh, most clearly in verse 29, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him since you're going through the same struggle that you saw I had and now here I still have. This is a little church that was born in the cauldron of persecution, as Ben read for us last night from Acts 16, and we heard the story of how this church was born. Paul preached the gospel, uh, and as he did so, he met severe opposition. He got a good beating with him and Silas. They were thrown in prison. Severe opposition and persecution. That's how the church was born. And it seems from verse 29 that 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 pressure has continued to, to mount. Perhaps it's even worse than what it was before. And when the pressure mounts on a church, it can, just like any other group, it can have that effect. It either brings you together or it splits you apart. And it seems that that pressure was beginning to split this little church apart. And you can begin to understand that, can't you? Um, As one person thinks, you know, we've got to be wise here. We've got to maybe not be confrontational in the way that we share the gospel. We've got to be be sensible. And so one person's wisdom and one person's non-confrontational approach is another person's compromise and appeasement and finger-pointing and blaming and charges of compromising uh, are thrown around, and the church begins to fracture. And it seems that that's what was beginning to happen uh, in this little church. But Paul now urges them to strive, to stand firm together, to strive after unity. Um, Why? Well, As you move into chapter 2, again, the chapter division here is really unhelpful. It's really unhelpful. I don't know why it's here. This is the same section. Um, Paul is continuing to talk about unity. Notice, uh, well, in in my NIV, it's been dropped out, but there's a a therefore, chapter 2, verse 1. This is the same topic uh, I'm continuing to talk about. Uh, And in fact, he continues talking about it all the way through chapter 2. And we see Paul in, really, in verses... 15 through to 16, Paul really spells out why this is so important. Why do you need to be united together? Look, verse 14, do everything without complaining. He's trying to motivate them towards unity. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Be united so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation. Uh, in which you shine like stars in the universe. I'm a city dweller now, so I don't get the opportunity to do this very much, but if you get out on a clear night, out into the country, away from the streetlights and the light pollution, and you look up at the stars, you see the myriad of stars, which are millions of miles away, but yet very, very clear 
against the black velvet backdrop of the night sky. Paul is saying, if you, as a group of people, bear with one another and your faults, each other's faults, patiently, if you forgive one another quickly, if you serve one another kindly, in a me-first generation, perhaps more appropriate today than in Paul's day, in a selfie generation, you will shine like stars. You'll shine like stars. You will stand out and you will be attractive. You will stand out and be attractive. This is why we've got to strive for unity, because of our mission, the importance of unity. Make the unity of the church your aim. The importance of unity. Make unity of the church your aim. The pursuit of unity. Okay, how do, you, how do we do that? Practically, what does that look like? What I have to do? Uh, and really, Paul then has a two-step plan for us to strive after unity. Uh, it begins there at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He, he begins with uh, a series of sort of if-then statements. Um, Effectively, he's saying, hands up, hands up, everyone, if you have been united to Christ and have known the, the joy of his acceptance and grace. Hands up. Hands up, uh, anyone, uh, if you have uh, experienced the joy of fellowship with other Christians. Uh, hands up, anyone, uh, if you've had a sense, whether big or small, of the encouragement of God's love. Hand, hands up. Um, hands up, anyone, if you have been experienced the care and the concern of other Christians. And Paul's expecting everyone to put their hand up. You get the idea? This is what you've got in common. Every Christian should have this as their common, their common experience. You see, effectively, we all share the same spiritual DNA. We all have one Savior. We have one Spirit who indwells and prompts each one of us. We have one Father. We belong to one church. We have one mission together. We have everything that matters in common, everything that matters. And so we are spirit. We share the same spiritual DNA. So in that sense, Christians, now give me a bit of rope here to explain what I mean. Christians should be a bit more like the mafia than Manchester City, right? right. Christians should be a bit more like the mafia than Manchester City. Manchester City uh, last season, now I, I don't know if you're Manchester City fans here, but look, these are just facts, right? Manchester, Manchester City last year spent more money than any other team in the Premiership on players. £174 million. Pounds. That's a lot of money. But we all know you can't buy love and loyalty, can you? You can't buy it. And so the big question is, could these group of stellar players work together? And it appears the answer so far is no, right? But the mafia are different, aren't they? Renowned for their loyalty, generally speaking. You take on one of the mafia, you take on everybody. Speak against one, you've spoken against the lot. Why? Because they're family. They're family. That's how it works. Part of the family. 
I'll not do my Marlon Brando impression. <laughs> but you get the idea. Christians are to be more like the mafia than Manchester City. We're, we're family. We're bound together by this common experience. We have God as our Father. We have one Spirit that unites us, uh, one Savior who saved us. So a life worthy of the gospel uh, is a life of togetherness with other Christians as we strive with one another. A life worthy of the gospel is a life of togetherness with other Christians uh, as we strive together. That's step one. Remember uh, what you've got in common. But then secondly, the second step of pursuing unity uh, is really from uh, verses 3 and 4 on, um, which is relate to one another in humility. If we are to have unity together, that sense of camaraderie, that sense of family, then there's two things that must be absent among us, two things that must be absent among us. Verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You cannot have unity if you have selfish ambition or vain conceit. Selfish ambition, which I take it as that attitude that says, look at me, hey, I'm the important one around here. You need, to, you need to know who I am and what I'm doing. Or vain conceit, which is to look around at other people and be very quick to spot their faults, which are obviously worse than mine, uh, and, and able to sit in sort of self-righteous uh, pride, looking down on the faults of other people. Paul is saying, if we are marked by selfish ambition or vain conceit, we cannot have unity uh, together. You see, in every social group, in every social group, uh, there is a pecking order established. It's a bit like a ladder, I suppose. Um, There are those who are more highly regarded than others, more popular, more prominent. And that's common in the way social groups are set up, isn't it? Um, And really, there's a little part in in each of our hearts that wants to climb that ladder of whatever group we're in. We long that other people think more highly of us than they currently do. That's just been honest. We're all like that. Paul is saying the Christian community is to be radically different. Rather than a scramble to the top, jostling for <coughs> position and reputation, it should be a race to the bottom. It should be a race to the bottom. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Paul is saying that there shouldn't be jostling for position. In fact, we should be tripping over one another to say, no, 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 no. You're more important than me. What can I do for you? That's what it's to sound like in the local church. Of course, if you're at all self-aware, if you're all honest with yourself, we'll know that this is a big challenge for each and every one of us. We're all infected with pride. And I'll be honest, I, I find that right here, right now, as I stand in front of you. There's a big part of me wants you to think well of me as I'm speaking to you about humility. Can't spot the irony. I want you to think I'm clever and I'm funny and I'm intelligent and so on. 
How, what is the antidote then to this pride? How, how is it possible that we could humbly serve one another, think of the interests of others above ourselves, when that absolutely does not come naturally to us? Uh, here's Paul's solution. He shows you the gospel again. He shows you the gospel again. Make the unity of the church your aim. And here's ultimately how you do it. Make the humility of Christ your model. Verse 5, in my humble opinion, is the most difficult verse in the Bible. Not because it's difficult to understand. It's really easy to understand. It's difficult because it's so difficult to apply, too difficult to put into practice. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. That should be your attitude. What was his attitude? Well, his attitude was one of ultimately considering the needs of others above himself, serving others in a self-sacrificial, profoundly self-sacrificial way, These are wonderful verses, verses 6 through to 11. We see the humility of Christ. We don't have time to go into all the details, but we see it in three steps. Oh, my time's going really quickly. We see it in three steps down, three steps down. The, The crown, the cradle, and the cross. First, the crown he set, the crown that he sets aside, who being in very nature God, Jesus, in his very nature, is the uncreated creator. That is who he is. He is the one who deserves the worship of every creature. He is the one who dwelt from all eternity in the glory of heaven. He is the one before whom the mighty angels who are sinless hide their faces. He is in very nature God, yet... He did not consider, as the NIV translates it, equality with God, something to be grasped. This is a, a, a difficult uh, little, little phrase to translate. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not that Jesus didn't have equality with God and was grasping for it. Right? It's not that he didn't have equality with God and was grasping for it. Nor is it that he did have equality with God and he let it go. It doesn't mean any of those things. Simply what it means, the essential idea here is, is that he considered his equality with God not to be exploited for his own advantage. He didn't stand on his rights. I'm God. You should, what you should do for me. In fact, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. He did not consider his equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself. This is the second step. The cradle. He made himself nothing. He emptied himself is the literal word here. Now, in some of your versions, it still has that word, emptied. Um, And this has caused many people to ask the obvious question, well, what did he empty himself of? 
and some have suggested that he emptied himself of certain aspects of his divinity. And certainly if you uh, sing um, Charles Wesley's famous hymn, And Can It Be, you will sing, He emptied himself of all but love. And it's a lovely line. It's a really nice line. It's a really wrong line. I'm sorry to say. Because it's not that Jesus has some divine attributes in his pockets and he just sort of, you know, I'll just set my just set my omnipotence here and I'll just set my, you know, omnipresence there and let go of these things. Not at all. He was diminished, but notice how he was diminished, uh, even in the verse. Not by losing something, but by gaining something. Taking something new, taking the very nature of a servant and been made in human likeness. He was diminished not by subtraction, but he was diminished by addition. Let me try. These, these are inadequate, horribly inadequate illustrations, but the best I can come up with. Uh, so imagine on a wet day, uh, you decide to take a really flash car for, um, for a test drive. You know, you go into the Audi garage or, well, maybe you're really ambitious, you go for the Ferrari garage. Uh, and you get the keys, and you go for a test drive, and it's a wet day, and you go slightly on some of the slightly grubbier roads. And when, the, when you hand the car back in, it's actually diminished by addition, isn't it? There's muck and dirt and grub added to it that actually obscures some of its glory. It still is what it always was, but now its glory is obscured in some way. Perhaps a better illustration might be the illustration of a king king who takes off his crown, takes off his robes and sets them aside and puts on the robes uh, or the clothes of a beggar. He goes out into the street and wants to experience what it's like as a beggar for a time. And so goes and sleeps rough and goes hungry. In his essence, he hasn't changed. He is still the king. And yet his glory has been obscured for a time. In the same way, Jesus' glory was obscured when he added a second nature. One man, one person, two natures, divine and human. He became one of us. He became one of us, taking on human likeness, the crown, the cradle. But his humiliation didn't even stop there. It went all the way to the bottom of the ladder as he endured death at the cross. And it was at the cross. It was, it was not just any regular kind of death. It was the most gruesome, the most humiliating, the most disgraceful death that anyone can imagine. In fact, if you're a Roman citizen, uh, Cicero wrote, the Roman citizen, uh, you know, famous Roman writer, said, uh, I, we don't talk, even talk about uh, crucifixion in polite company. It's so horrible. Jesus went all the way to the bottom of the ladder. And what did his father think of that? Of his humiliating himself for the good of others? What did his father think? That it was beneath him? What a waste. No, quite the opposite. His father esteemed what he did. And so as you have three steps down in some way, the crown, the cradle, the cross, you have three stages of exaltation as, notice the three everys, every, every name, 
Uh, a name that is above every name. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. He is brought to the highest position because the Father esteems humble, obedient, self-sacrificial service like that. That's what God the Father esteems. And so go back to uh, verse 5. In your relationships then with one another, have the same mindset, the same attitude uh, as Christ Jesus Are we willing to give ourselves for the good of others, to sacrifice our interests and our preferences and our agenda for the good of other people? And look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how badly they've treated you. Uh, And it doesn't matter what they deserve. And it doesn't matter what you deserve. Here's the pattern. Here's the pattern for you. Give yourself for the good of other people. Like the Lord Jesus, not to, to pour yourself out for others. A life worthy of the gospel is a life united with other Christians where we rush to the bottom of the ladder in humble service because we have been thus served by the Lord Jesus. And when you stop and think about it, this is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And the alternative is ugly. Just this week, I saw one of those um, little gifts that just is a little image there, a little, little motion picture thing that just repeats on a loop. And it was of Donald Trump pushing the president of Albania out of the way for a photo opportunity. Just, just out of my way. I'm, I'm the one that matters. And you can't help but think that is ugly. That is ugly, isn't it? Ugly. And so as we jostle for position and try to get the spotlight and try to convince people to think, look, I'm, I'm, I'm the one who matters here and I'm the funniest and I'm the one who's achieving things. Look at me, look at me. It's ugly. It's ugly. God thinks it's ugly. And the truth is you think it's, you know it's ugly too. And the alternative is beautiful. Don't we celebrate stories of soldiers throwing themselves on grenades to save their comrades? Self-sacrifice is beautiful. Self-sacrifice is beautiful. But at the end of this section, and, and our time is gone, but at the end of this section, you may be left with the, with the sense that, well, that, well, okay, that's well and good for Jesus. As you've argued, he was divine. Uh, I, I, I couldn't do that. I'm, that's, that's, just, that's just beyond me. I couldn't attain to that sort of humility and self-sacrifice. And that's why Paul finishes this little section with three very ordinary, very human, very imperfect examples of this exact attitude of himself, of Timothy and Epaphroditus. Paul talks about himself uh, being poured out as a drink offering. I'm giving myself for your good. Uh, a drink offering was, was like a, a, a cherry on the top of your sacrifice. You would offer your sacrifice uh, and then just as a way of adding something a little bit extra to show just how, how thankful you were to God or how filled with praise your heart was for him, you would have taken a, a, an offering of wine and poured it out on top of, of the sacrifice. Paul is saying, that's a bit like my life. I'm happy to have it poured out if it means that more people get to know Jesus and grow in their faith. You, Philippians, been an example of that. I'm, look, that's fine. I'm happy with that. 
Timothy similarly. Timothy's Paul's joy. Timothy's interest. Uh, for everyone looks out for his own interest. Not Timothy though, actually. Everyone gravitates to looking after themselves, putting themselves number one. Timothy's different. He's concerned for you. He's concerned for you. We're not told exactly what that looks like. At the very least, we, we can guess that that is he was keen to hear the news of these Philippians. No doubt he was praying faithfully for these Philippians. He was, but he cares. He cares. He wasn't just self-consumed. He was concerned for others. Or Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus, as we saw last night, is the guy who took the, the financial gift from the Philippians t- to Paul, the one who was, was there offering practical support, pastoral care to Paul. Uh, and, and we read in this story that he risked his life. Uh, the, the idea seems to be in this that, that he got, clearly he got sick, uh, but the idea seems to be that he actually risked his health. He put his health in jeopardy in order to make that journey and be sure to serve Paul. Deliberately risked his health. And, he, uh, and not only did he do that, but as he's Ill, Ill now this is very different to most men, most men, uh, when, when guys, girls, you need to know this, when guys get the flu, uh, it, it's always life-threatening. It's just always life-threatening. Uh, and the, you just need to know that. Um, uh, but when I get ill and I'm lying on my bed, uh, there's only one person I'm concerned about. And that's me. But notice Epaphroditus is different. As he's lying on his bed, ill, near to death, he's concerned for the Philippians. Oh, you know, they're going to feel really bad that they sent me now if I die. You see, it is possible to make baby steps in this journey to become more like Jesus. It's possible here, three ordinary men who are behaving, living out a life worthy of the gospel, concerned for others' needs above their own. We have no excuse. We have no excuse. And so the way to work together in unity, to strive together, to serve one another, forgive one another, serve one another, uh, and be concerned about one another, is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Be inspired again by what he did to see the beauty of his actions and to try by God's help with the empowerment of his Holy Spirit to follow his example. (coughs) Let me pray for us. Father, we recognize that we all so far fall so far short um, of the, the model of the Lord Jesus or for that, for that matter, the, the model of, of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus. Father, we know that like a sickness, we are infected <laughs> with selfishness and pride. And so we pray, please, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, begin to heal us, begin to change us, begin to humble us and inspire us by the model of the Lord Jesus. Father, we pray, please, for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.